Last week, we began a sermon series called Unlearn, during which we will examine some of the assumptions that we may have picked up from our families, our culture, or maybe even from church that we might need to unlearn or re-examine in order to gain a new depth and understanding of our God through Christian doctrine. So as we prepare now to hear God's word read and proclaimed, would you join me in a word of prayer? Let us pray. Lord, as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, so let your word be that goes out from your mouth. Let it not return to you empty, but let it accomplish in us that which you purpose, and let it succeed in the thing for which you send it to us, gathered here today. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. The Old Testament lesson comes from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 55, verses 1 through 13. I invite you now to listen for God's word to you. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you that have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen, so that you may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. See, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. See, you shall call nations that you do not know, and nations that do not know you will run to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord, that he may have mercy on them, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, do not return there until they've watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I send it. For you shall go out in joy and be led back in peace, the mountains and the hills before you shall burst into song, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall be to the Lord for a memorial, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And the New Testament lesson comes from the book of Romans, 
chapter 3, verses 21 through 28. Paul's sentences in Romans are long and compound, and it can sometimes be hard to follow. So I invite you perhaps to follow along in your pew Bibles. It may help you track with his train of thought here. Again, this is Romans 3, verses 21 through 28. Listen once again for God's word to you. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. God did this to show his righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove that at the present time, he himself is righteous, and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. What then becomes of boasting? It is excluded. By what law? By that of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works prescribed by the law. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, namely 5th century Rome, there lived a man by the name of Pelagius. Highly educated and a gifted orator, Pelagius had become concerned with what he saw as a lack of moral rigor and standard in the Christian church. He was sick of the excuse for moral shortcomings he so often heard, that people sinned because of their inherent human weakness. Pelagius taught instead that the human will is essentially good and essentially free. Therefore, if people worked hard enough and exerted enough effort, they had the capacity to attain perfection and therefore their own salvation. And the achievement of perfection was not only feasible, but required. Pelagius wrote, since perfection is possible for man, it is obligatory. Pelagius was opposed by St. Augustine of Hippo, who is surely the most influential theologian in church history. Augustine declared that human weakness and need were stronger and more consequential than any remnants of human freedom to choose good that may or may not have once been a part of human nature. Therefore, human beings are ultimately totally dependent on the grace of God for salvation. Augustine eventually prevailed. Poor Pelagius was condemned by two councils of African bishops in 416, and again at Carthage in 418, and he's excommunicated and disappears from the pages of history. But the philosophy that bears his name, Pelagianism, has remained a vocal opponent of the gospel of grace ever since. 
a thousand years later, the Protestant reformers who were suspicious that the Catholic Church was placing too much emphasis on the merits earned by good works, the Protestant reformers reasserted a doctrine of sola gratia, that salvation is entirely, only, solely an act of God's free grace and is never in any sense merited or earned. Still, the philosophy of human potential and goodness and responsibility which undergirds Pelagianism is evident in almost every sphere of life today. So much of our American culture exudes a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps sort of mentality, right? On both the political right and the political left, appeals to freedoms and liberties are standard justifications for our perspectives on things. The Enlightenment's lofty view of human reason still lingers today, though much of the optimism on which it was constructed came crashing down in the wars of the 20th century, which hardly left human beings looking reasonable. In film and literature, Cinderella stories abound of people who started from the bottom but through concentrated power of will worked their way up to places of power and influence and prestige. We love to root for the underdog, right? Because we have an unfailing belief that with enough effort and execution, they really could pull off the surprising upset. Ralph Waldo Emerson's widely influential 1841 essay, Self-Reliance, unveils some of the history and underpinnings of this philosophy. Emerson lauded each individual's capacity for their own insight, which they should trust above whatever anyone else believes. Even experts and philosophers should not be trusted more than one's own intuition. Mature people, for Emerson, are those who trust themselves above everyone else. Now, when you look at the world today and our society's response to the pandemic, do Emerson's ideas betray themselves a little bit? I think they do. Now, perhaps this obsession with self-reliance is why we tend to believe that we've earned everything that we have, while others who are struggling just need to work harder or make better decisions. But it's just too simplistic to assume that the world is more or less virtuous and just, for that would be to assume that the world's people, which comprise its societies, are more or less virtuous and just. And that sounds a lot more like Pelagius than it does Augustine. Still, though, if you're like me, you probably prefer meritocracy over any other kind of setup. Sure, we want some grace sprinkled in here and there, because after all, we all make mistakes. But ultimately, we tend to prefer a world where hard work is rewarded, where consequences serve as a deterrence for bad behavior, and where at least generally people get what they deserve. It's common sense in our society even if it isn't perfect. But our reading from the book of Isaiah today paints a very different picture of the world through the lens of faith. You who have no money, come buy and eat, says the prophet. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. In our world, the work comes first, and the reward comes later, right? First you earn your money, and then you go buy your wine and milk. 
But in Isaiah's vision of the kingdom of God, the reward comes first. You go and acquire your wine and milk, and then you're ready to be a light to the nations. God's provision is up front. God's grace is up front. And our work is a response to having all we could ever need. Abundance is the default state of affairs. In our culture, we tend to believe that hard work begets abundance. In the kingdom of God, abundance begets hard work. It's not that there's no work to be done because all the good stuff is freely given by God. For Isaiah, the nations must still be drawn to Zion. The wicked must still forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. But this transformation comes on the heels of God's abundant grace, not as a prerequisite. With grace, there are no prerequisites. With grace, there are no conditions or qualifications to be met, no application required, no interview process. With grace, there's just an abundance of wine and milk, and God bids you come and get it. Grace is offered freely to everyone because, as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans, everyone stands in equal need of God's grace. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And since we've all sinned, we're all also justified by his grace, he says. None of us can boast that we're more deserving of grace because we were better people to begin with. None of us can boast that we were at least in range of getting the law of God right, while others are totally lost and forsaken. No, we all have this common need for grace. And we've all received that need. God has met that need for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in whom we received grace long before we ever even asked for it. Blaise Pascal said to God, I would not seek thee, hadst thou not already found me. And that, my friends, is the gospel. But no matter how often we hear that grace is free, it continues to sound a little bit strange to us. When it comes to our lives of faith, we do have to unlearn this Pelagian twinge from the rest of society that insists that everything, even grace, is at least in some sense earned. If it's true of our ways with each other, it must also be true of God's ways toward us, we might come to think. We tend to think that grace, as Paul describes it, seems a little hyperbolic. It sounds a little bit overstated. Maybe grace works in conjunction with our good works, with a kind of synergy. Yeah, that's more reasonable. Let's share some responsibility here. Or maybe grace is there as a kind of backup in case we make a mistake, like the bumper guards on a bowling alley or the backstop on a baseball field. It's there if we need it, but if we're good and if we do well, if we bowl or pitch a strike, we may not need it much. These kind of ideas sound reasonable, but they betray a Pelagianism that we have to unlearn. Grace is not in the background, it's in the foreground. Grace is not something you fall back on, it's something that lifts you to your feet. 
Grace is not something that we even choose. It's something we realize we've been given. We need to reconsider the ways that we sometimes trivialize the notion of grace and try to just sprinkle it on as a flavorful garnish on top of our culture's Pelagian meat and potatoes. Grace is not an ingredient in the recipe. It's the whole meal. It may feel like all the greatest things in life are earned, but when we really think about it, the greatest things in life are actually outpourings of God's grace. If I were to ask you to identify the finest moments in your life, what would you say? What comes to mind? Sure, you might think about the moment you were awarded your highest degree, promoted to your dream job, or the moment you bought your first car or your first house. And don't get me wrong, that's great stuff. To be sure, moments when we see that our hard work has paid off bring well-deserved satisfaction. And we should feel good about those moments, of course. But moments that are even better are actually rooted in grace. That is, they're not attainable by hard work. If you've ever fallen in love, think about what that experience was like. Did it involve a lot of hard work? Sure, you had to make intentional efforts to connect with your partner, right? You had to make sacrifices for the relationship. You worked hard to make the most of being in love, but not to actually fall in love. You can't make yourself fall in love, nor can you make someone else fall in love with you, no matter how hard you try. It simply happens to you. It emerges quite apart from any effort on your part to feel something. But when love does begin to appear among a couple, all of the ensuing hard work to make that love last is joyous, worthwhile, wonderful work. But we undertake that work only because the love appeared first, perhaps by surprise, perhaps by accident, surely by grace. Now, as great as this good news about grace truly is, those of us who are doing well in life often want to object. We want to qualify it somehow. This grace is a little too free, a little too loosey-goosey. We may think it de-incentivizes good behavior, right? What if people hear that grace is completely free and so they decide it doesn't matter what they do, someone may ask. What if people then don't pursue a devout and holy life, asks the one. What if people don't then pursue justice and peace in the world, asks the other. Indeed, the latest research findings from Arizona Christian University demonstrate that a majority of Christians aren't convinced that grace really comes with no strings attached. In their American Worldview Inventory 2020, Researchers found that 52% of people who identify as Christians accept a works-oriented means of salvation. What? Many believe that a person can qualify for heaven by being or doing good. 70% of Catholics, 46% of Pentecostals, 44% of mainline Christians, 41% of evangelicals. And you can hear Pelagianism present even in the phrasing of this question about qualifying for heaven. 
You see, this is the problem with our operative view of grace. Whatever the confessions might say, we keep wanting to turn grace into something that you qualify for in some way. Maybe you did just enough good deeds to cancel out your bad deeds, and so you qualify for heaven. Much like if you paid off just enough of your bills on time to qualify for a loan. The Apostle Paul actually dealt with these very same detractors in his own day who asked the very same questions we often ask today. Later on in Romans chapter 6, after his declaration of free, unmerited grace in chapter 3, which we read a moment ago, we read Paul's comments to his imagined interlocutors, that is, his hypothetical conversation partners, who Paul anticipates asking, If what you say is true, shouldn't we just keep sinning so that grace will be even more plentiful? And Paul answers with a forceful Greek phrase, by no means, or God forbid. And he goes on to argue that people who take the view that grace is simply a license to do whatever we want haven't understood the magnitude of grace in the first place. Grace is so potent, so awe-inspiring, so amazing, that if we truly understand it, it elicits a response. It prompts a transformed life. Grace doesn't lead a person to shrug their shoulders and say, great, I'm good to go. I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. But God's grace summons a reply. Here's the irony, though. Our Pelagian persistence undercuts the depths of our doctrine of grace to such an extent that we sometimes make it easy to shrug off. It will be there if we need it, like our parents' emergency credit card. So we have a little more assurance as we go about our business as we otherwise would have. Sometimes we stuff this radical doctrine of grace into a Pelagian formula about being a good person, and thereby we make it much less compelling than it would otherwise be. So friends, I think we need to untangle our understanding of grace from our culture's insistence that everything is earned. Society demands enough from us as it is. We need to work hard in order to do well in the world. There need to be consequences for mistakes and incentives for excellence. All of that's true. But God has adopted an altogether different posture toward us in Jesus Christ. And if we really admit just how radical and free God's grace towards us is, how might that change the way that we treat one another? How might that change how we act in the world? Would it prompt us to forgive more readily and offer more second chances? Would it elicit a more merciful attitude towards those who are struggling with addiction, relationships, finances? Would it help us treat ourselves with more compassion and grace? May God's posture of grace toward us dictate how we operate in the world.
because God's grace is before all else. Everything starts and ends with grace. Everything starts and ends with grace alone. Alleluia and thanks be to God. Amen.